If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 14 tonight. We've been off for a couple of weeks. We'll jump right back in uh, and recap some of the verses that we left off on. We'll begin at verse number five and read through uh, verse seven in just a few minutes. Um, as with all of our studies in Acts so far, these messages, I believe, and, and the text that they're coming from, of course, um, more importantly and most importantly, uh, Acts is uh, a book that is written for the church. Uh, it is written to instruct the church. It's written to roll rub off on the church. Um, while Acts can inspire those that are non-believers in Acts, of course, the gospel is on display in Acts. Acts' primary purpose as a, as a teaching tool and as, as a, a book to study and learn from is so that the church will see where we came from and see where we should still be at. Uh, and and if, you've, uh, if you've enjoyed these messages and these uh, studies throughout the book of Acts, um, I, I believe that as a Christian, as a church member, or as someone, a part of the church, you, you see just how important it is that we follow in these steps and, and mimic these same um, decisions that they made repeat those same decisions and reinstate and reinstall and, and, and re-implement those tactics that, that maybe have been left behind through the years. Uh, if you've been convicted or have been challenged by this study in Acts, that's normal. Uh, we as Christians, of course, need instruction and the Word of God is going to challenge us. It's going to convict us. It's going to sharpen us, uh, which sometimes that is uh, can be a little bit tough to hear at first, but it, of course the end result is for the better. Uh, so if you've enjoyed these studies in Acts, and if you have been challenged by these studies in Acts, I implore you, um, don't lean away, don't, don't lean back from, but lean into and allow God to teach you from his word. Uh, and, and we're going to read later on in Acts about a people from Berea. And the thing that made the Bereans different and, and unique were that they took what Paul taught them and they went home and read it and they studied it and they tested it according to the scriptures as a whole. But they were interested in learning more. And I hope and I pray that as you hear these studies from the book of Acts that you'll do that same thing. Uh, because what we want uh, Acts to do for our church, what we want Acts to do for us as Christians is to bring us more in line with the early church's model and to lead us down that same pathway. Uh, and I think that tonight will be another incredible and important conversation. Um, if, it, if we're going to get back there, um, if we're going to get to the place that the church was at one time. Uh, it may not be our fault that it left that place, but nonetheless, we're born in a generation that is so far away from where it should be. And I think tonight's chapter is just another one in the line of many that we've had uh, conversations that bring us to that place and bring us back to that place. So uh, we left off um, in this remarkable transition period in the book of Acts uh, where the momentum has began to shift. Um, across the first few chapters of Acts, if you remember back to our early studies, we used these words a lot. We talked about the movement of God and we talked about the momentum of God, the momentum of God over the people, amidst the people, and through the church. Um, we've been building towards this moment throughout Acts that Acts 13 and 14 shows us uh, show, and, and, and rolls out for us um, when the momentum will begin to shift. Uh, the tide begins to turn. The church becomes as much about reaching and engaging Gentiles 
as it was for and about the Jewish people. Um, this was previewed at Pentecost. Remember, there were people there from all around the world heard the gospel in their native language, previewing that God was going to reach the world, not just the Jews. Um, we saw that again in the story of Stephen when Stephen clashed with the Jewish authorities. Uh, Stephen said, God is bigger than your temple. He's bigger than this land. He loves you and he's primarily come to you, but he is not just staying here. He's going to reach the world. Uh, we saw this, of course, with Peter and Cornelius. Peter did not want to go, but God changed his mind and, of course, ended up changing the world because of that encounter back in Acts 10 and 11. And then things begin hitting on all eight cylinders when the church at Antioch gets planted and the movement begins to grow from there. Uh, we see the apostles' goal was to reach the Jews. That was their primary goal. When they left from Antioch, they were reaching the synagogues that were scattered around the Roman Empire uh, because there was that shared context. It would be easy to go to them and say, well, you, you've heard of Abraham, you've heard of Moses, you've heard of David. Well, this is the Messiah that was promised to them. Um, of course, God promised Abraham that he would reach, he would bless his people. So they were primarily fulfilling God's Old Testament promise, but Acts 13 is the first of many examples where the synagogues reject the message, uh, just like the authorities in Judea did. The synagogues and their people reject the gospel for the most part. Um, and we read back in Acts 13, uh, back around verse 46, I believe, uh, 46 through 48, if you'll mark those, if you haven't already highlighted those, these are very crucial transition moments in church history, uh, where Paul and Barnabas respond to the rejection that the synagogue gives them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Paul says it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you have rejected it and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, and this is a big moment when Paul says this, we turn to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah where it says the light has been pointed toward the Gentiles that salvation would reach the ends of the earth. This was God's plan all along, right? Acts chapter 1 verse 8, go to the ends of the world, ends of the earth. Paul says this was always God's plan to use Israel as a light to reach the rest of the world. Uh, verse 48 tells us that when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and were saved. And we spent the last message in Acts talking about chapter 14, verse 1, where Luke makes this very important distinction uh, that as many Gentiles believed as did Jews, that it wasn't some Gentiles and mostly Jews. It was an equal number in a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks. So that was a big moment. Uh, again, the fact that the Gentiles came up to the same line as the Jews was a moment in the a line in the sand. It was a major prophetic milestone for the church and for God's plan throughout the ages as they show this momentum has officially turned toward the Gentiles. Now, this is not God shutting the door on one race over another, but it was clear the religious Jews were not willing to let go of their traditions in order to embrace Jesus. And that's what plays out in the book of Acts. Now, it's really unique and, and, and interesting to think about. I'm reading a book right now that talks about the church in the second century, which would have been a, between 100 and 200 AD. A hundred years from this moment that we're reading about in Acts, 35, 40, 45 AD, across that decade when the church spread around the world, a hundred years from that moment, so in the second century, um, by that time period, the church would primarily be a Gentile movement, which is remarkable to consider. 
I mean, no one could wrap their minds around this. And if you read history in the second century, the, the pagan historians are just completely agap. They're completely uh, spellbound by the fact that this Jewish movement has now become a Gentile movement. And, and again, it was just remarkable. How did an overwhelming how did an overwhelming number of Gentiles across Europe come to put their faith in a Jewish carpenter as their savior and worship him as God? By the way, they were also persecuted in the meantime. So while being persecuted, while being came against by the Roman government, how in the world did an overwhelming number of Gentiles across Europe come to put their faith in a Jewish carpenter who was crucified by Rome? How in the world? Did they come to put their faith in him as their savior and worship him as not just a God, but the God? It, it made no sense and it was truly unexplainable, but it was undeniable. It happened. And the seeds of that change, of that shift, of that major world-changing sequence are sprouting in front of our eyes in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And when we get to Acts 15, it's even more incredible. It reaches a whole other level that I can't wait to unpack with you next week. But we must be clear about a few things. And this is the goal of tonight's message. Acts 14 is going to emphasize several times and in several ways that if not for the church and its missionaries having the right spirit, there would have not been a difference made. That if not for the church and the apostles and the missionaries and everyone in the team, if not for their spirit and their determination and their ethics and their motivation, if not for them having the right spirit, there would be no difference made in this time period. And maybe the world history that came after it would not have been the same. So what we're going to talk about tonight is that how it's emphasizing about the posture and the passion being crucial in seeing the world come to Jesus before the apostles. The response would only be, and this is so important, the response would only be as healthy as the movement preaching and promoting the message. Does that make sense? The response would only be, and by healthy, I don't mean numbers. By healthy, I don't mean quality of the sermons preached. By healthy, I don't mean that everybody that made professions were living, you know, A-plus spiritual lives. What I mean by healthy is the motive and the attitude of the heart doing the preaching influenced the motive and the attitudes of those that heard and those that responded. There was a direct correlation between the posture and the passion of the preachers and the church members and those that responded to them. I think it goes without saying, there's no response if there isn't a message spread. I think that's on the base level. If we're going to dig this down to the bottom layer, we can all agree there's no response if there isn't a message, right? Romans chapter 10, 14, Paul says this, and he could say this because he was one of them that spread the message. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So clearly Paul says, if we're going to get this message out, it's going to have to be told. It's got to be preached. It's got to be spread, which is common sense, right? We have to spread the message for there to be a message to hear. 
While the message is true and able to make a difference, regardless of what is driving the messenger. Now hear that very clearly. The gospel is the gospel, no matter how it's preached or how it's presented. The gospel is true, and the gospel doesn't need our help in reaching people in terms of how we sell it or what we say about it. But it is important that it goes through us. That's how God chose for this message to spread, through the preaching of the gospel. I think in Acts, we witness that truly pouring yourself out and into your work and investing in the hearers with genuine interest and genuine care and incredible passion, that those things are key if we are to make what we're going to call tonight an indelible difference. Now, indelible may not be a word you hear or use every day, but I think it's worth learning tonight. And I think it can be inspiring to us, help us consider our own hearts. The word indelible means to leave an erasable, unforgettable mark. To make an indelible difference is you leave an erasable, unforgettable mark. We might would say that the, the impact of a storm left an indelible impact indelible mark on something. We might would say the influence of someone's teaching left an indelible. So we can talk about this literally. We can talk about this, you know, metaphorically or spiritually speaking. If we can, for a minute, I want to talk about the alternative. I want to talk about the opposite of what we would consider an indelible impact, because this is what we want. We want to make an indelible impact on our world. And this is what I believe we see in Acts 14 and forward. But First, I want us to talk about what would be the opposite of making an indelible impact. I want us to talk about the things that we must be aware of and not repeat. Uh, Mistakes of those that have went before us. If we are going to make an indelible impact, we've got to make sure that we don't follow in the wrong footsteps. Which, you'll be surprised, the Bible is full of some bad examples for us. And I want to talk about one of those specifically. Consider the story of Jonah. It's well documented, the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh, and Jonah said, no. And Jonah literally went in the opposite direction. God said, I want you to go here. Jonah went the other way. He was on a boat trying to go to Spain, which was the ends of the earth in his time, or in his world on their map. So Jonah was going the wrong way. Remember, just like Peter said no, Jonah said, no, I'm not going. Well, we know the story. The well changes Jonah's mind. Jonah is spit out, literally is vomited out onto dry land. He hightails his way to Nineveh. And the story goes that Jonah gets to Nineveh. And we can read between the lines, but Jonah isn't too enthused about this. But Jonah was just swallowed by a whale and barely got back on dry ground. So Jonah is not about to disobey God this time. So the Bible says that Jonah in Jonah 3 began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we don't know if this is all that he said, but I think the idea is, is here that Jonah really didn't go about making relationships. He didn't go about trying to really make an impact on the community. He just went through and said, okay, God, you told me to go, say, go tell them that I'm, you're going to destroy the place in 40 days. That's all I'm going to tell them. So Jonah, and we re- we'll look, bit, look at this in a minute, Jonah went into the city with a bad attitude. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to help these people. He didn't want God to help these people. He was mad about being there, and he wishes he wasn't there. And you might think, well, that's, how can that be? I'll show you. Jonah goes and literally just repeats what God told him. And 
to his surprise, the people of Nineveh believed God. And the Bible says they begin to fast and pray and seek the Lord. And the king declares a fast and the entire city turns to God. It's a miracle. Nobody expected this to happen. Jonah didn't want this to happen. Now, the reason why most Bible studies in Jonah only cover the first three chapters is because nobody knows what to do with the fourth chapter. Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why would he say that? He was so mad that God saved his enemies. He was ready for God to kill him because he couldn't stomach living in a world where his enemies not just were spared, but were saved. Now, we talked about this back in Peter in Acts, in Acts 10, where how, you know, the, 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 the dis, outright distaste the Jews had for the rest of the world. Not everyone was like that, right? But Jonah, I don't think I have to really explain it. Jonah did not want these people to be saved. He didn't want God to help them. And he said, God, I knew you would do this because you're merciful and gracious and good and kind. And I wish you weren't except to me. And then God takes the tree that he's sitting under because he's hot and he's whining because he's sweating and he's, you know, it's the heat of the day and God takes the tree away from him and Jonah complains because he's hot and God says, you're mad at me because I took away your tree, but you want these people to die and suffer for eternity. And then the story just ends. We don't know if Jonah ever repented. We don't know if Jonah ever saw the errors of his ways. But what we do know is this. The people of Nineveh could tell and I think the way the story goes after that with the story of Assyria, Jonah did not invest in this city. Jonah did not make an effort to leave this city better than he came at it with. He, of course, preached this gospel and they responded. I'm not eschewing the personal responsibility of the Assyrians, but I think it's fair game to consider that there was no support system put in place. There was no faith community built there. There was no care or shepherding for these people. And I think there's an obvious connection between that reality and the fact that the next generation of Ninevites, the next generation of Assyrians go back in the opposite direction. They go 180 degrees away from God and they begin to go back into paganism. Now, the story of Jonah takes place early in the, in the, uh, the timeline of the nation of Israel uh, as the, under the king, uh, right after Solomon, Jonah's story takes place. Now, we know that later on in the Old Testament, Assyria is an enemy of Israel and Assyria attempts to invade Israel, but God prevents that and God judges Assyria because it was steeped in paganism. I don't think, there's, I don't think that, that, that we should avoid this connection that there was a spiritual vacuum left in Nineveh. That Jonah went in and preached the gospel to them and they believed, but then there was no system put in place. There was no, you know, there was no faith community. There was no body there to shepherd them. And there was a vacuum in Nineveh. And if you read the story, if you study the history, the evil Tiglath Pileser, which is a really cool name, but he wasn't a cool guy. He and his son Shalmaneser filled the void and led the nation astray once again. So the reason why I bring this up is I think we see in Jonah the example of doing the right thing in the wrong way. And the impact that had on Nineveh was, was indelible in the wrong way, in, in the worst way. 
This is what the prophet Nahum, you probably have never read Nahum before. If you have, I'm not saying you haven't read it before, but you probably have never studied Nahum before. Nahum is written to the Assyrians right before God judges them. And this is what Nahum says to the people of Assyria. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles somber. They had no shepherds. They had no one that cared for them. And God judged them because they had sinned. God judged them because they walked away from him. But whatever had happened generations prior to with Jonah did not trickle down to this generation that he judged. And God says, your people are scattered. There's no guidance. There's no infrastructure. There's no help for your people. There's no ease in your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Now, I got to ask, I got to bring it up. Don't you think things could have been different? If just a few generations prior, the people responded to God's message and to God's word. Now, obviously, God had a plan that was sovereign, but I think that Jonah's half-hearted mission and lacking a follow-through plan is proof of something. Proof that without a faith community, proof that a faith community is key for faith to be sustained and grow. Because what happens from one generation to the next in Nineveh is proof that without a faith community... Faith will not be sustained and faith will not grow. Without a faith support system that cares for us, we will begin to care less about our faith. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't personally responsible, but I am saying that the Bible makes it very clear that we need a faith support system. And if we don't have one, we will not last. I think that's pretty much proof if you go out into the world. Now, both the Old and New Testament are very uh, much about faith communities. The Old Testament Jewish religion, the New Testament church. And while we can't control the response of people, we can control what we put out and what we continue to put out to people. See, the contrast from Jonah to Acts is obvious. There's, the reason, there's a reason why an indelible impact was made in these Gentile communities because the New Testament apostles and the disciples were persistent about building a church that cared for people and being faithful to minister to the people. They left the world a different and better place. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time is study what made the apostles and what made the early church so pure and effective in its ministry? How in the world? What, what, it was more, and I gotta say, it was more than just they went in and said, the Bible says this, you should listen to it. It was more than that. Because Jonah did that, and it worked for a generation, and then it went back the other way. Jonah saw revival, but those people didn't last, or that generation fell away quickly. But what happened in Acts changed the world, and 2,000 years later, it's still different because of it. So what made the apostles so pure and effective in their ministry? And what I want us to do is learn to adopt and apply these same strategies that have a proven track record. So that, and here's our goal. I don't think it's too lofty of a goal. Regardless of response, we can assure that our output is faithful and increase the odds that our impact is indelible. You think we can make this our goal? That regardless of how people respond, and we're going to talk about it tonight, they don't always respond the way we want them to. And they won't always, and that's most likely the case in a world that is fallen. 
Regardless of response, though, we can assure that our output is faithful to God's word so that the odds would be increased, that the impact would be indelible. And this is, much, this is as much about you and I getting our mental focus right as it is about how the world responds. And I'll talk about why that's very important. Now, first off, I want us to get a sense of the passion and motivation beginning with a few verses that we left off at in Acts 14. Remember, they're being persecuted by unbelieving, unaccepting Jews who are stirring up Gentiles against them before they get a chance to reach them. And listen to how this, uh, this, this opening passage ends, verses 5 through 7. When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, to surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So it says, when they found out that, hey, this city's not really on board with you, they fled. Now we hear flee and we think, well, they were scared. They were running for their lives. But what does verse 7 assure us? They fled to these other cities to what? To preach the gospel. The very gospel that was rejected, they went to preach it to more people. Now, this is important, and this is so crucial that we get this right. They fled to the next cities along the path, not for fear of their lives, but for the continuation of the mission. Not because they threw their hands up and said, what's the use? but because the mission needed to be continued. And this is so crucial. If you don't get anything else tonight, I hope and pray you at least consider this. We cannot become negative because of rejection from non-believers. We must continue to stay positive about the mission and potential believers. You hear that? Let me just interject here. 99% of missions and would-be missionaries, and I don't mean the ones overseas, I mean the ones in your own lives when you get a chance to reach somebody, 99% of missions and missionaries fail between that space. That rejection makes us negative and we lose all momentum, we lose all positivity, we lose all hope for the mission that remains and the potential believers that could be. If we are allowing those who reject or refuse to listen to overtake us, we run the risk of being emptied by the, of the Spirit. If we allow negativity to fill us, we will be emptied of anything positive and anything powerful. This shouldn't be an issue for mature, rooted in the Word and faith Christians. We need, and I say this with, to myself, we need to repent if that is the case and ask God to change our hearts. Think about how negative we can become as Christians just because somebody or some group or some generation rejects us. It ruins church's mission mindsets. We allow negativity to take root and we lose the sense of motivation. Now, remember the story of Samuel? Remember Samuel got bummed out because the people rejected God as their king and rejected him as their prophet. And remember how God had to do as much work to help Samuel as he did the rest of the nation. Back in, chapter, back in 1 Samuel 8, God says, this is Samuel. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. He says, Samuel, I know you're bummed out, buddy, but they rejected me. They haven't rejected you. I still need you to be a prophet. I still need you to be on the mission field. I need you to be in my place for the people that may yet believe. Well, a couple of years go by. And Samuel has hung up his mantle. He's hung up his 
scriptures, Samuel has given up. He thinks there's no use. Well, the world has rejected God. What do I need to stay positive for? What should I stay motivated for? And eight chapters later, God says, Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king? Samuel, it's been a long time, buddy. How long are you going to be negative about that? Samuel, I need you on the mission field. Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel, put the oil in your horn. A picture of the Holy Spirit being sent forth by the word of God. I need you to fill your horn with oil and I need you to go back on the mission field. I have provided a savior for my people, but unless you go, they may never meet him. I mean, isn't that a little bit close to home, church? Church, we need to ask ourselves a very important question. Does somebody else's rejection do anything to our own acceptance? And I'm not trying to get in your heads, but I want us to think about this because so many Christians, well, they rejected and they aren't listening, so what's the use? And what that does is it causes us to forget what we have believed and what we have accepted. Come on, should somebody else's rejection dampen your enthusiasm? I mean, you're a Christian. You know what being a Christian means? It means you have access to salvation from God. You have access to the Holy Spirit from God. You have been eternally saved and secured. Then why are we so negative? Why are we so defeated? Should our enthusiasm be dampened just because the rest of the world says no to what we've said yes to? Should it hinder someone else's potential salvation? God forbid, no, it should not, but it so often does, doesn't it? So we need to remember the words of Jesus like the apostles did. If you'll remember Matthew 10, Jesus wrote the playbook for discipleship and for evangelism. When he, when he gave them the playbook for when they would go to the mission field, which we read about in Acts. He pumps them up. He says, I'm going to give you power to work signs and wonders that is going to prove that I am the Messiah. And they're high-fiving and they're fist-pumping and they're totally stoked for the mission. But then Jesus said, before you go, before y'all go out there and start casting out demons and changing lives, before you go, i got to tell you some few things. And this is the part of the commercial that's usually sped up at twice the speed and you can't really hear it because it's, they have to put it in there for obligations in the fine print at the bottom of the magazine ad. But Jesus said it twice as slow and bolded the, the, this so Jesus didn't hide it from him. He says, guys, yeah, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you signs and wonders. But also, I want, to, I want you to know a few things. That I'm sending you out as, dove, as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out and you're going to be persecuted. And all of a sudden, the air just goes out of the room. He says, you're going to be rejected, betrayed, and killed for this mission. And all of a sudden, they're looking around thinking, what? And I think Jesus is smiling when he's saying this because he knew that this would test them. I think he looks around the room and he sees them go from inflated to deflated. But I think we can see what Jesus is doing there. He was testing them. 
Of course, persecution would come, but this was a test. He was testing them, and this is so big. He was testing to see if the anointing he gave them would be enough to sustain them, no matter the potential disappointment the world would give them. That's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Is the anointing that God has given us enough to sustain us, no matter the potential disappointment the world might and will give us now substance wise of course is enough but when it comes to our focus and motivation our response to hardships will prove if this is true or not look at what jesus told them in matthew 10 23 when they persecute you in one town flee to the next does that sound familiar acts 14 verse 6 they fled to lystra because they were persecuted in Antioch. So what do we see the disciples doing? Obeying the words of Jesus. That's how serious they were about getting this right. And what did they go and do in the next town? They went and preached the gospel. The negativity and rejection of one did not hinder their motivation in the next. Church, I don't think a lot of us would get past that those few verses. I'm not judging you. I'm talking about me. A lot of preachers would not get past that rejection. Come on, what does our bitterness and dejection in the face of rejection say about the substance of our faith? It's more than just a bad look. Come on, what do we call ourselves? The Bible refers to us as evangelical, which means that we are recipients of good news. Well, evangelical means those that have received good news. The Bible says we are to be evangelists, which is to bear good news. Keyword, good news. Does this describe our posture and our passion for this mission? Do we run towards the chance to do more for God? Or at the first bump in the road, do we lose heart? You know, the why, you know why the Bible over and over again says, be of good cheer, don't be afraid, take courage? You know why the Bible says that again and again and again? Because it knows we are so prone to give up and get discouraged and get defeated. Church, I don't, I don't think we can call ourselves evangelicals if this good news does not define us and help us overcome the hardships. Shouldn't evangelicals be encouraged and enthused by the good news, no matter what bad news we face? Shouldn't we be motivated to share the good news? Don't you think this should work this way? Think about the examples of Jesus in the Gospels. When people heard about him, and especially when they encountered him, they were enthusiastic, they were excited, and they would become evangelists. They would go and share the good news. Jesus would say, hey, don't talk about this, and they could not talk about it, right? When they became more excited and more blessed, as they shared the good news... Listen to this word that I think directly ties into what evangelical means and how evangelical we should be. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25. One who gives freely yet grows all the richer, yet another withholds. What should he give? Only suffering won't. And this is key, verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself or herself be watered. Do you know what that means? We will be most joyful when we are most evangelical. If we want to be to find joy, if we want to find 
enthusiasm, we will spread the good news, especially when something has given us a reason to not, especially when we feel like there's no use and that there's no point. If you want to be watered, go water something. This is a promise, isn't it? Whoever brings good news will be enriched. Whoever goes in waters will himself be watered. If we want to be enthused, we must endure and press on. The Bible says there is joy in heaven when somebody is saved. Don't you think there is joy to be had on earth? Just the same. Don't you think that's why the church in Acts was so happy and so unified? They were driven by the mission and the mission kept driving them. Hmm. Look down at verses number 19 through through verse 23. This is after they go into this town, they preach the gospel, they face more rejection, more persecution. And I mean, this is just incredible. Verse 19 says, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having, pers- having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. They knock him out. They throw enough rocks on him that they think he's dead. And the disciples gathered around him as if to pay tribute to him, thinking he's dead. And he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So verse 21 says, And when they had preached the gospel into that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. I mean, I think, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, Luke, he just got stoned and drug outside the city and they thought he was dead. And you're just going to move right on to the next verse that he gets back up, goes back into the city, then goes to one, two, three more cities and preaches the gospel. I mean, can we stop and talk about the fact that he was stoned and left for dead? Luke says, no, 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 I don't want to get hung up on that because that didn't stop Paul. They could not stop him. He went and preached the gospel more. And look at what he says in verse 22. When when gathering, strengthening the soul of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. He says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. They said, Paul, are you okay? You just got knocked in the head a few times. No, I'm fine. That's normal. That's going to happen. We can't, let this get, we can't let that get us down. What kind of people would we be if that happened? Isn't that incredible? Don't you want that same resilient spirit in you? The good news is you've got it. That is the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. If we give our lives over to the mission, if we give our lives over to the evangelistic mission, I want to spread the gospel. I want to be used for the gospel. I, I encourage you to read verses 8 through 18. We don't have time, but in the between there, Paul and Barnabas, when they're preaching the gospel, people, the Greeks think that these are Roman or that these are Greek gods made flesh, that they think these are the gods that have come down to visit them. And they're convinced that, wow, we are in the presence of the, the pantheon of gods. And in this moment, Paul or Barnabas could have very easily made this all about themselves. They could have said, oh, yeah, I'm Zeus and he's Hermes and we're here from heaven to get you to worship us. They could have became cult leaders. But they refused to make the movement about themselves and resisted the praise of man as vanity, as wasteful, 
I mean, it's a remarkable story. They could have used God for their glory, but they chose to be used for his glory. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you know, we get lost in the pagan details, but think about how many times we make this about us. Now, we might not get mistaken to be Greek gods, but we get a little attention, we get a little bit of recognition, and we won't think twice about committing robbery against God's glory and making this all about us. That which was dedicated to God or meant for God becomes about man. Church, we can't fall for that. These movements may thrive for a season, but they die in the blink of an eye. We must resist the praise and glory that may be offered or may be within grasp. We must defer it to God and constantly seek God's will, not ours. God forbid we communicate to people that we can make a difference for them, that our habits can make a difference. Only the gospel and only Jesus can make a difference. We are just messengers. And who are we to give up so easily just because somebody might reject his message? This, these disciples were not seeking to gain followers for themselves, but seeking to gain followers for God. Again, it goes back to being evangelical, preaching the gospel. And exalting Jesus isn't about what we want, but about what God wants and about what people need. You know how many times people have rejected the gospel that I've preached? I've watched a lot of people walk away from me, knowing good and well that something wasn't right. Not because I can see things, but just because, hey, it's obvious that a lot of people don't, aren't, aren't where they need to be, right? What if that would allow us to become so negative? What if, what if I said, you know, God, it's not worth it anymore? They're not listening. I don't care. Why should I? You know, I think that the one thing that really is hurting the church in today's generation, if we have, we have lost our evangelical spirit. We've decided, you know what? We just need to hunker down and wait it out. One day the rapture is going to take us out of here, but until then we just better get in our little corner and just hope it's okay. I don't think that's how it should be. I don't think we should be bitter and negative. I think we need to be as motivated as ever because if, the God, if God can save me and you, he can save anybody. We've learned tonight a few things. We must, be, we must have endurance. And I think that middle one's so key. We've got to have enthusiasm. And if you're, if you're with me tonight on that, listen, I can endure. I'm fine with enduring. I can, I can put my head down and I can just continue to go forward. And I can, you know, sometimes I'm enduring, but I feel like I'm not having fun. We need enthusiasm, church. I think that's, that's an epidemic in our, in our churches. We don't have enthusiasm. Why is that? We're like Jonah. We're, yeah, yeah, God can save you. But hey, you know, I don't even know if I want him to save you. We need enthusiasm. We need to ask God to give us that. I mean, Paul wasn't going from town to town thinking, well, I've got to do this. He went from town to town because he wanted to do this, because he knew that there was joy to be found. We also need humility. Humility that made Paul and Barnabas say, hey, don't call us gods. We're not anything special. We're just messengers. And we want to tell you about the Savior. We want to tell you about Jesus. These are, they followed the word. They weren't tempted to walk away from these essential ingredients. And church, would you join me in asking God to give us these, to put these ingredients in our hearts? Give us endurance, to give us enthusiasm, and to keep us humble. I think if we make these three things on our hearts and minds every single day, we will make a difference. We will make an indelible impact on our world. And listen, don't let one person's rejection take these away from you. 
Because there may be one other person waiting to accept what somebody else may have rejected. We've got to remain evangelical. We've got to remain on mission. It's too great of a cause to quit. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the guidance that you give us in your word. God, help us as a church, help us as a generation of churches to not lose our evangelical spirit, our evangelical commission. We've been called to go into the world and preach the gospel, and we've been called to do it with endurance. We've been called to do it with enthusiasm. We've been called to do it with humility. Lord, help us to learn from the Apostle Paul and Barnabas who would not give up just because they were rejected in one town. They wouldn't let that discourage them from going to the next. God, I don't know how many times I've felt like, well, there's no point. There's no use. It just doesn't work like that. But it's that endurance to the next week. And that's, it's that enthusiasm in doing the mission. It's that humility while serving. It's, that's what makes the difference. That's what can make an indelible difference. God, use these men and women, raise up saints, raise up evangelists to help us go into the world and make a difference in the lives around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.